This is our third week in our series, We Believe. What we're doing is exploring the uh, central tenets of the Christian faith. One reason for doing this series is because truth matters. Okay? I say that to get your attention. Truth matters. Right? Truth really does matter. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And it is only God's word, the truth, that can set a person free. That's why this series is so important. We behave like we believe. So we need to believe the truth so we will behave properly. Another reason this series is important is because God wants us to grow in our understanding of Him. Because as we understand God more... We will love him greater, right? 33 years ago, in May of 1983, I married Miss Angie. We walked down the center aisle of the uh, Norman First Free Will Baptist Church. We said we do, and we did. That was 33 years ago. You know, as, as time has gone by, and I've got to know Angie much better than I did 33 years ago, my love for her is quite a bit deeper. Now, I had dated her for a year and a half, or I had, let me back up. I dated her for a year. I knew her for a year and a half before we married. And I thought I knew everything you could know about Angie Archer. Boy, was I wrong. Huh? Over the last 33 years, I have learned almost everything there is to know about her. Well, let me put it like this. She knows what I'm thinking 98% of the time. I think I know what she's thinking 67% of the time, right? That's kind of how it goes. But here's the deal. The more I get to know Angie, the more I fall in love with her. And it's the same way with God. To know who God really is is to help us love him more deeply. And church, that's why doctrine is important. Doctrine matters because it helps us know the amazing God of the Bible. And when we know Him, we love Him. With that in mind, today we turn our attention to what we know and what we believe about God's Son, Jesus Christ. There is a document, it's a creed called the Apostles' Creed. Uh, it was written years and years ago based upon the central teachings of the Gospels that are found in the, in the Bible, written by the apostles. Now, in Baptist life, uh, we don't read creeds very often. We don't read doctrinal statements too often. You know what? We'd probably be better off if we did, all right? But I want to read to you a portion of the Apostles' Creed. I, I wish I would have sung this song to you today. Maybe next week Ron will sing it to you, all right? My favorite song in the world is based on the Apostles' Creed, the middle section, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there... He will come to judge the living and the dead. This is what I believe. And I believe what I believe because it makes me 
what I am. Now, here at Kavanaugh Church, we have a statement of our belief of who Jesus Christ is as well. If you go to our website, KavanaughChurch.com, and pull down the tab, What We Believe, this is what it says we believe about Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. In his divine nature, truly God. In his human nature, truly man. The mediator between God and man, once crucified, he is now risen and glorified and is our ever-present Savior and Lord. I can say amen to that. I believe that. Now, here's the deal. Listen very carefully. This is at the heart of the Christian faith. And in order to be a Christian, we've got to believe this about Jesus Christ. In order to be a follower of Christ, we must believe what the Bible teaches us about God's Son, Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to be able to explain it all, because I can't explain it all. There are some things about Jesus Christ, God's Son, that can't be explained. You might say, well, what are you talking about, preacher? Well, I can't explain how Jesus Christ could have been fully God and fully man at the same time. But he was. Why do I say that? It's because what, it's what the Bible teaches, and it is what the Christian church has historically believed. Thus, to be a Christian, we must accept this by faith. But that's how we live our life anyway, isn't it? It is by faith, and this truth is the essence of what Christianity is all about. Now, here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to make two statements, and then I'm going to follow that up by sharing with you some biblical doctrinal words that describe what Jesus did for us on Calvary's cross. First statement is very important. We believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. We believe Jesus is God in the flesh. This truth, truth flows directly out of Scripture. And as the Apostles' Creed read, we believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. But he didn't have an earthly father. Joseph got to raise him, but Mary was a virgin. Well, who was the father? The Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit placed the seed inside the virgin Mary's womb that brought forth the man-child, Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 urges us as Christ's followers to look for the blessed hope. That's what we're to be doing today. We're to be looking for the blessed hope. Church, are you looking? Well, open your eyes then. Right? <laughs> what do you mean, preacher? Look for the, the blessed hope. What is the blessed hope? Well, it goes on to tell us that our blessed hope is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this passage makes clear that Jesus Christ is both God and Savior. As God, Jesus raised the dead. He walked on water. He taught with unparalleled wisdom. He performed miracle after miracle. As man or Savior, Jesus lived a sinless life. And then at 33 years of age, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. So Jesus is true God, and he is true man. After Jesus rose from the grave, he appeared to his disciples. 
they were in an upper room. And they were stunned when Jesus just showed up alive again. But one of the disciples was not present. His name was Thomas. They went and told Thomas, we've seen Jesus. He's, he's alive. He rose from the grave. And Thomas said, well, I will not believe that until I can see the nail holes in his hand and the hole that was in his side from the spear. A few days later, they were in the upper room again, and all of a sudden, bam, there was Jesus. He didn't walk through a door. He didn't crawl through a window. He just miraculously appeared in their midst, and they could see that Jesus had a body. He was not a ghost. He was a man with a body. Yet when Thomas saw him, he cried out, My Lord and my God. Both terms, my Lord and my God, were used exclusively for God by the Jewish culture of the time. So it's very clear that Thomas believed the risen Jesus was not just a man, he believed he was God in the flesh. And let me add to this, there are erroneous doctrines or beliefs that say Jesus was 50% God and 50% man. It's not the case. He was 100% God and 100% man. He is God in the flesh. The second statement I'll make is this. We believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. Roman or Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just like we are, yet was without sin. Jesus lived for 33 years as a human being, but he never sinned in word, thought, or deed. Jesus was sinless. No other human being has ever lived a sinless life. Nobody else was sinless. No matter what someone says, they're, they're not sinless. No matter how you perfect you think your grandkid is, that grandkid is not sinless, all right? Jesus was the only one. In fact, when Jesus stood trial before the Roman authorities in Luke chapter 23, on three separate occasions, Pontius Pilate said, I cannot find any fault in this man. Jesus' own enemies tried to trump up charges against him, but they could find nothing to accuse him of. And Peter, who lived with Jesus night and day for three years as one of his most trusted disciples, had this to say in 1 Peter 2.22 describing Jesus. He said, he committed no sin and no guile or deceit was found in his mouth. Now, the reason it's essential that Jesus was sinless is because of what happened on Calvary's cross. At Kavanaugh Church, we believe that Jesus lived a sinless life and then he died on the cross a vicarious death and sacrifice for our sins. You see, because Jesus was sinless, he could die in our place as a sacrifice for our sins. All through the Bible, it makes clear that the just penalty for sin is death. For example, Ezekiel 18, 20, the soul that sins shall surely die. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. This means 
because we've all sinned, we deserve the penalty of death. I'm just going to do a little time out for that to soak in. You're a sinner. You're a sinner by nature. You're a sinner by choice. And because you're a sinner, the penalty, the just penalty for your sin is death. But factor this into the equation. Jesus was sinless. He had no sin. So Jesus didn't have to die. That death penalty wasn't on his back because he was sinless. So this allowed Jesus to offer his life as a sacrifice in our place. Because he was sinless, he was able to give up his life so that we would not have to pay the penalty for our own sins. Glory, hallelujah. <laughs> Isn't that great? Romans 5 put it this way. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, God's word is emphatic that all humankind, all mankind is under the condemnation of death because of our sins. But Jesus Christ took that penalty upon himself by dying in our place. And there are several biblical words that are used that describe what happened on the cross. I'm going to look at six of them very quickly. The first word is the word ransom. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We use the term ransom most often when there has been a kidnapping. Kidnappers may demand a ransom to release the person that they've taken hostage. So ransom refers to the payment required to release a person from bondage. Well, Scripture shows us that mankind, human beings, you and I, are being held captive by the penalty of sin. Sin has us held as its captive. Because of sin that we inherited at birth and because of bad choices that we make every day, we are under the death penalty for our sins. But Jesus Christ's death on the cross paid the ransom to release us and set us free. Ransom is a good thing. Jesus paid our ransom. The second word that goes along with ransom is the word redemption. The freedom in this ransom is not simply forgiveness. The ransom also gives the power to overcome sin in our daily life. Why? Because we've been redeemed. Jesus redeemed us. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. What a tremendous verse. His redemption empowers us to turn away from the godless habits that enslave us 
so that we become eager to do the right thing. We've been redeemed so we can live right. Sin is a choice. Once you have received Jesus as your Savior and he has redeemed you, you don't have to sin. You don't have to. He gives you the power to overcome sin. When temptation comes, you look to him. He gives you the way out. Redemption is awesome. Thus, Jesus' death on the cross paid the ransom for our sins and it redeems us giving us the power to overcome sin every day that we're on planet Earth. The third word is the word reconciliation. It's another biblical term to describe what happened on the cross. Reconciliation happens and is needed when there has been an offense between two parties. Now, occasionally, very rarely, once ever blue moon... Angie and I get into an argument, and we need to be reconciled. And since I'm almost always the bonehead who goofs up, I'm the one who needs to ask her for forgiveness. And when that happens, Angie and I are reconciled, and our relationship is restored, and there's peace again. I don't know, maybe I just, just had a thought. Maybe that needs to happen in your house. Huh? Anyway, here's the deal. Because we've sinned, the Bible says we're estranged from God. Now get that. Because we've sinned, we are estranged from God. Our sin has broken our relationship with Creator God. We see this happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were in fellowship with God. They walked with God. They talked with God. But then sin entered the picture and they were estranged. The fellowship was broken. And you can see that trace all the way through history. Now, it is popular today for us to talk about God's love for mankind. And that's a good thing to talk about, isn't it? Because I'm here to, God does love us and it's true. God's love is amazing. Amen? God's love is awesome. God's love is incredible. But that's only half of the coin. God is not only a God of love, He's also a holy God and a righteous God. And because God is holy, sin matters. Listen to me, church. Because He is holy, sin matters. It matters so much, in fact, that it causes God's wrath to be upon us. We don't like to talk about that. But it's true. Ephesians 2, 3, Paul says, We were by nature objects of God's wrath because of our sin. In other words, because of our sin, God has a serious problem with us. His wrath was directed towards us. And we are in serious need of reconciliation. I don't know too much about God's wrath, but I can tell you this. It's not good when it's directed towards you. <laughs> okay? Thankfully, God took the initiative in Christ to make reconciliation with mankind. Woo! <laughs> Praise God for that. He didn't have to do it. But he took the initiative. 
even though we were the ones who were at fault, God took the initiative to make reconciliation with us. This is truly amazing. Just listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Through his death on the cross, Jesus bridged that gap. He reconciled us to God. Now we have peace with God. And because of that, we are to be the messengers of reconciliation. We are to tell other people how they can find peace with God. It came through the cross. You might say, well, preacher, how did that happen? Well, when Jesus died, according to Romans 3.25, God's wrath toward our sin was appeased. This allowed reconciliation to happen. Listen to Romans 3.25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. The technical term for what happened is the word propitiation. It's found right there in Romans 3.25. Christ's death made propitiation for our sin his death paid the price of our sin debt which turned back God's wrath so that we could be reconciled to God and it all happened on the cross man isn't the cross a big event in history <laughs> the ransom that frees us from the penalty of death and sin was accomplished on the cross the redemption from bondage to our sin was accomplished on the cross. The reconciliation in our relationship with God the Father was accomplished on the cross. The propitiation that turns back God's wrath against us happened on the cross. Thank God for the cross. One more thing happened on the cross. Another word I want to give you is the word justification. Justification occurs when God declares a person to be righteous on the basis of Jesus' substitutionary death on their behalf. To, just, to be justified means that God looks at us and he sees us just as if we had never sinned. And that's pretty amazing. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In other words, our sin leaves us falling short of God's glory. But in Christ, we are justified. Just as if we had never sinned by the grace that comes through Jesus' death on the cross. Now, the key to receive justification, and you want to know the key, don't you? The key to receive it is faith. It's faith. In fact... Faith is the key to receive all the blessings from the cross. The ransom, the redemption, the reconciliation, the propitiation, the justification. We see it in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are declared right in God's sight by faith. 
We are justified by faith. When we place our faith in Christ and the work he did on the cross, it opens up the door to all the other benefits that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And all it takes is faith. Now, I'm going to go back to our statement of faith. We believe that Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man, once crucified, is now risen and glorified, and he is our ever-present Savior and Lord. We believe that after Jesus died on the cross, he was buried in a tomb. His body was placed in the tomb on Friday, between, right before the Jewish Sabbath began at 6 p.m. But on Sunday morning, after the Sabbath was over, his disciples went to that tomb and they saw that it was empty. <laughs> the most remarkable miracle to ever take place occurred. Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. The resurrection is the capstone miracle proving that Jesus is who he said he was. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus is an essential tenet of the Christian faith. Here's the way Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. So after Jesus rose from the grave, he appeared to his disciples for 40 days. Paul goes on to tell us that over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. And after that, the Lord ascended back into heaven. We read about that in Acts chapter 1. Jesus had a final meeting with his disciples and he commissioned them. And then he went back into heaven. L listen to what Acts 1 8 describes for us. Jesus said, but you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going. When suddenly, two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. <laughs> Thus Jesus ascended back into heaven, completing his mission for dying on the cross to save us from our sins. And right now, right now, this very moment, Jesus is seated at the right hand of of God the Father. And you might think, well, what in the world is Jesus doing? He is serving as our, and here's my final word, he's serving as our advocate. 1 John 2, 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. The NIV says we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. He's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus is our advocate. Someone once put it like this, when the Father looks at us, he sees us through the blood of his son Jesus Christ. So he sees us as righteous and clean. Romans 8.34 says that Jesus Christ who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. 
Church, here's the good news. Jesus is for you. Jesus is for you. Jesus loves you. Now, I'm about to shut up and sit down, but that's not all I've got to say. I've got to say one more thing. We believe in the Christian faith and at Kavanaugh Church that Jesus is coming back one day. He will come again. Jesus came the first time as a humble servant. When he comes back the second time, he will come back as conquering king. The second coming of Jesus is one of the most frequently repeated prophecies that, are, that is found in the Bible. We read about this glorious event when he comes back in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. This event happens after God's judgment has been poured out on the earth. That appears earlier in the book of Revelation, but in chapter 19, Jesus is returning to earth. It is a climactic moment in human history. And this is what the Bible says about Jesus coming back. Okay. It's going to happen. We believe it's going to happen. This is how it's going to go down. Revelation 19, 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. <laughs> and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name that is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Church, he came the first time as a baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and they laid him in a manger. Why did he come as a baby? Because nobody's afraid of a baby. And he brought the message of God's love. He died on the cross to save us from our sins. But he's coming back the second time as the mighty warrior of God. And we see later in Revelation chapter 19, he does war with the devil. He dukes it out with the devil again. And in chapter 20, verse 10, he casts the devil and all of his angels into hell fire where they will be tormented day and night for all eternity. The devil gets his due. But before I end, let me read to you what happens at the end of Revelation chapter 20. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, 
And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now the lake of fire is where the devil and his demons will spend eternity. And this specifically tells us that if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you're going to be in hell too. For all eternity. I say, well, how do I get my name in that book? By believing in the person I've been talking about this morning, Jesus Christ. We've got to believe in Jesus. We have to have faith in Jesus. He's the only one who can save us from hell. Now get this, I'm about to shut up, but get this. On that day when he comes back, the Bible tells us, Every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But for a lot of people, it's going to be one day too late. It'll be too late. The awesome thing is, he's giving you the opportunity to come this morning and bow a knee. If I was you, I'd bow both knees. (laughs) And I would confess Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Lord. And I would pray a prayer that's just as simple as this. Dear Jesus, I do believe that you are the Son of God. And by faith, I invite you into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to live for you. Become my Lord and Savior. And if you pray a prayer like that and believe in your heart, you too can be saved. Heavenly Father, I pray that someone would do that this morning. I pray that lost people would come and be found by you today. I pray that sinners would be saved. Lord, there may be some people in this room who just simply don't know. They're not for sure if they're saved. Lord, they don't need to leave this building today until they know, until they're sure. So help them to come and nail things down with you and make sure they're right with you. Lord, for the rest of us who just need to come and pray and give you our problems, knowing that you love us and care for us and that you're right there at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for us, I pray that we would come and and give you our hurts and our fears and let you work mightily in our life. Lord, bless us today. Help those who need to come and pray to come. Minister to them as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, would you stand with heads bowed and eyes closed? The praise team is going to sing.